This is the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. This is where it all counts. This is why we're here. This is why each one of us are here. And now, here's your host. Welcome back to another edition of the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. I am Paul Pertichese, and I'm really excited to be joined tonight by special guest, Mark Schofield. Mark, it's been an annual tradition of coming on the Saturday Sunday podcast. Really excited to have you back tonight. Yeah, it's great to be back. Love coming on. Uh, one of my favorite shows each year. It's like you said, it's become sort of an annual tradition. I'm trying to remember like the first one we did. Was it like the Watson Mahomes Trubisky class? I think that I might like have been the year it was. Yeah, I think that might have been the first year. It was either that or the year right before it. So we've been doing this now. You know, those guys, have, you know, we'll talk about a couple of them tonight to yeah. start the show. But, you know, they're, you know, moving on to new places, monster contracts, all this stuff. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about some of those guys, little 2021 quarterback, and then obviously transition to the main reason why I brought you on is to kind of make sense of this 2022 class. Uh, Jeff Abercrombie, glad to have you back in the saddle with me. I know it's been a couple of weeks. Uh, great to have you here. How are you doing tonight? Yeah, uh, thanks, Paul. I mean, life life caught up with me, and uh, COVID finally caught up with me after two years, too. So we, we went through that in the household, and uh, we're, we're fortunate that everybody kind of came out pretty pretty easy. We, we, had a, we, we got lucky, and, and we're, it only took about a week to get, to get better. But uh, I'm excited to come back here. Um, and on, I picked the perfect timing to be able to uh, get down into the de- details with Mark. I mean, uh, couldn't couldn't pick a better person to to talk quarterbacks with, in my opinion. Absolutely, and let's jump right into it because I can't remember in my entire fandom before even Saturday to Sunday we've ever had an off season quite like this. So we could do a whole hour pod, Mark, just on the quarterback movement in, 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 with the veterans and stuff. But I did want to at least kind of throw out of all the major moves with the quarterbacks. And I'll even include two guys who are still with their team. And that's Patrick Mahomes playing now without Tyree kill Aaron Rodgers staying in green Bay, but now without Devontae Adams, Russell Wilson to Denver, uh, Deshaun Watson traded to Cleveland, you know, lesser moves like Carson Wentz going to Washington or Matt Ryan to Indianapolis. Is there one or two in particular that you're like, I'm just fascinated to kind of see how this unplays itself out and what you're most looking forward to with these major, major moves and changes, even for guys who stayed like Rogers and Mahomes without their elite, elite level wide receivers. Yeah. I mean, I, like you said, Paul, we could probably go an hour on these storylines themselves because there's so many different fascinating angles to them. One that comes to mind is Rogers without Devontae Adams. Um, I'm fascinated to see how that's unfolded and, and how that will unfold on the field. Because now, obviously, with the Green Bay sitting there at 22 and 28, everybody's like, look, they got to draft a receiver. Maybe they draft two receivers. I've seen some mocks where they double dip a receiver. Now they've lost MVS. Obviously, he just signed with the Kansas City Chiefs. You know, on the, on the day we're recording this, we're recording this Thursday night. So there's another guy that he has experience with out the door. And if you look back through Rodgers through his timeline, like, he doesn't really jive with rookie receivers. I think I saw that like no rookie receiver has ever had 600 yards receiving or more with Rodgers in the entirety of Rodgers' career. So, yeah, let's say hypothetically they double dip with the, the two Ohio State guys, Wilson and Olave, at 22 and 28, just throwing names out there. Are we sure that they're going to see immediate production? 
because historically, like Rogers doesn't really connect. Like you look at his relationship with Adams, it was predicated on their chemistry, their trust, the back shoulder throws, all of the stuff that they did in the passing game was really built upon that foundation of trust between quarterback and receiver. At this point in his career, I don't know if Rogers is going to build that overnight if they add a rookie receiver or two. So I'm curious from that perspective, how that plays out. The other thing that really sort of fascinates me, and you can look at the Wilson move with Denver. You can look at the Washington move with Wentz. And I think it's a nice little tie-in to what we'll talk about a little bit later, which is this rookie class. Teams are opting for veterans over rookies. You know, you look at Washington. They're sitting there at 11. Theoretically could have had their pick of any of these guys in this class. They went with Carson Wentz. And they didn't just, you know, trade for him. They took on his contract. They said, we'll take Carson Wentz, even though a week ago, week prior to making this trade, Chris Ballard stood at a podium in Indianapolis and obliterated Carson Wentz. Just absolutely destroyed him. I was walking into the media area as Ballard was walking out, and he was like red-faced, and people were like following him. And I'm like, what did I miss? Because I literally landed like 30 minutes prior to that. And everybody to a person was just like, Chris Ballard stood at that podium and just torched Carson Wentz, just obliterated his trade value. Just basically called him, you know, basically said, look, he's a 29-year-old guy, and I have to talk to him for an hour about handling criticism and coaching. And so that night in Indianapolis, everybody's like, there is no way Chris Ballard is going to find somebody willing to pay a sixth-round pick for Carson Wentz. What does Washington do? They give up the two picks, and they take on a salary. So that tells you right there, this league, skeptical about this rookie class. Then Denver, they're sitting there at nine. What do they do? They go get Russell Wilson. Now, obviously, Wilson is still a very high-level quarterback, but that's another team that could have had their pick of any of these guys in this draft. And they went out and got Russell Wilson. Pittsburgh at 20. Mitchell Trubisky. I mean, that's kind of the undercurrent to the quarterback conversation that I think has really been in part an impetus for all of these moves, which is teams are very wary of this group. Teams are very wary of whether it's Willis, Pickett, Ritter, whomever, stepping in and start at week one. Now, that doesn't mean we don't see three, four maybe guys in the first round, but I think the league views this quarterback class as guys that are going to need some time. And so the teams that felt like they needed a new week one starter, they went the veteran route. Now, it doesn't mean we won't see some of these guys playing next year. I think, you know, if Carolina ends up being the team that drafts a rookie first or, you know, people will say maybe Detroit at two, maybe Atlanta, you know, we'll probably see those guys at some point. But that view of this quarterback class from within the league, it seems like, is these guys are going to need some time. And I think the carousel that we've seen in free agency and via trades is a reflection of that. Yeah, and I think, you know, and Daniel Jeremiah has made this point a lot on on air, on Twitter, that that Josh Allen versus Patrick Mahomes game that we saw in the playoffs, that game is going to resonate throughout the NFL for quite some time. Because if you don't have a guy that you think could do that, or you don't think any of the, the upcoming rookies can be that level player, and that's why I'm so fascinated to get to the 2022 guys in a couple in a couple minutes, because if you can't for envision a scenario where that's what your quarterback can be down the line, well, then is he worth the investment of building three or four years or giving three years or, you know, now sometimes guys, teams move on quicker, but that's what you're striving for. So this veteran movement, 
some of these stop gaps, which I think is, you know, the Colts went with Matt Ryan and, and even Washington, I think, you know, gun to their head, they probably don't look at Carson Wentz as the next guy for five years, but they just don't like this class. So they're buying themselves another year and they obviously overpaid just to buy that year. And I think Carson Wentz is still just living off of that magical run when he was on the way to win the MVP, but Nick Foles kind of stepped in and they didn't lose stride. So I think at some point the league's got to realize that maybe it was just perfect scheme, perfect coaching, perfect play calling that year for the Philadelphia. And maybe it wasn't so much the quarterback, which I know it usually is, but maybe it wasn't in that instance. And it was just more of the the perfect surrounding there in Philadelphia, but so much intrigue with the veterans. Let's transition to the 2021 quarterback class. Cause I had you on last year and we were waxing poetically about how excited we were about these rookie quarterbacks. And yeah, we know it takes time, but we've also seen guys come in and, and adjust a little bit quicker. And then last year, it, it just, nothing really went right for most of the rookie quarterbacks, except Mac Jones, who did end up in the best and the most stable situation, you know, in terms of, you know, play caller team asking the, him to play a certain way. What are you looking forward to in year two? Or maybe is there anything you dramatically changed your opinion on in the limited sample size that we had for some guys like Justin Fields? I mean, we barely had Trey Lance. Uh, Have you changed your opinion much on Mac Jones? I am assuming you're not ready like me to kind of throw in the towel on Trevor Lawrence with the chaos that was Jacksonville. Any quick thoughts on that 2021 class? Because to me, that was still an elite, elite level quarterback room and a quarterback class that we just haven't had a chance to maybe see rise up yet. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not coming to any conclusions I'm moving off of what I felt about that group, which I still think was a very impressive quarterback class coming out. I think perhaps the biggest shift we might need to make is there's something to Davis Mills that maybe we weren't paying enough attention to? Because I think there were times last year where you could have made the case that he was the best rookie quarterback out of the bunch. I mean, he was really impressive for a, a, a Houston team that didn't have a ton around him. And now Houston's in a great position where they've got their two picks in the top 15. They've got, you know, the pick at three and the pick at 13. Now they could go in a number of different directions. They could go edge. They could go tackle. They could go Kyle Hamilton. They could add a receiver at 13. They're in a nice position where they've bought themselves some time with Davis Mills. They can, give themselves sort of a year, one more year with Mills. And if he takes more strides and say, yeah, we got the guy, but obviously with the trade that they just made with the Deshaun Watson move with Cleveland, they've got that future draft capital where, okay, Mills isn't the guy at the end of this, at this time next year, we're not convinced they can go get a CJ Stroud if he comes out or a Bryce Young, if he comes out. So I think Davis Mills is kind of somebody that sort of reshaped our focus, but for the other guys, like Trevor Lawrence was an absolute brutal situation. Like, Yes, there's the whole Urban Meyer situation, the Trent Balky situation. Your final home game, people are dressed like clowns because they're so angry with ownership for retaining the general manager. Like, that's a bad situation. He wasn't getting help from the guys around him. Guys weren't separating. Guys weren't making catches. He did, I think, everything a, a rookie quarterback could have done in that situation. And so I'm excited to see what it looks like with competency around him. I'm excited to see what it looks like with, you know, a, in a Doug Peterson offense. Look, Say what you want about Doug Peterson. Say what you want about Carson Wentz. Peterson was part of the group that got Wentz to that 2017 season. And so there's a record of quarterback development that's clear. And I think 
that puts Lawrence in a position to be successful. I'm very, as much as it pains me, you can kind of see some Patriots stuff over my shoulders here. The Jets, I think, are in a very good position as well. I, I think they're in a good position with what they've done so far in this offseason. I, I, I think early in the year, you could see, and I wrote about it at USA Today, you could see that Wilson was adjusting to life, playing behind pockets that weren't like what he saw at BYU. He was speeding up his footwork. He was speeding up his drops, and it was causing problems. He was starting to throw or wanted to throw when stuff wasn't even close to starting the break yet. It really disrupted time, and he settled down after he sort of had some time away, comes back, and he looked much better when he came back. And so you look at what Wilson did last year. You look at – I think C.J. Uzama is going to be a huge signing for them. Obviously, the ability to just attack the middle of the field, those two high looks – the ability to do some of the stuff they've been doing in the outside zone, line zone boot game where he's slicing into the flat or he's running shallows or there's a slam into the flat. That's going to be a big fit schematically. You know, the additions they made on the offensive line, I think, are going to help. They also have the two picks in the top 10. So I think Wilson's going to be in a very good position. Lance, I, we didn't see a ton from him, and the flashes were there. You know, the game against Houston where he played, even the game against Arizona, his first start, like you saw some good throws. You saw some bad decisions. His best throw in that game was a throw that probably got dropped by Mohamed Sanu where he had to read a rotation of the coverage, you know, pre-snap versus post-snap. And I I thought he did a good job reading that. Um, Obviously, the big question is, are they going to move Garoppolo? Because, you know, I poke my nose into 49ers Twitter every now and again, and it seems like there's an ongoing war between whether Lance is ready or not. And there are people that are trying to say that, oh, because they haven't traded Garoppolo, it means that they don't think that he's ready. But then other people point out they signed Nate Sudfeld to QB2 money. So clearly they're going to move Garoppolo. Like it's an ongoing thing, but I still think he's an extremely talented quarterback in a absolutely perfect offensive system, given what he ran at NDSU. So I think he's in good shape. Similar to the Trevor Lawrence discussion, Justin Fields. Now we're going to see some competency around him, I think. We're going to see, you know, him away from Matt Nagy, I think, is going to help because Matt Nagy had cracks of two different rookie quarterbacks, first Trubisky, then Fields. Neither one really got to where they needed to be. So at some point it's like, okay, maybe it's not the quarterbacks. Maybe it's the guy trying to coach them. And so I'm excited what Fields looks like. Of course, that's a tear-down, rebuild situation. It looks like, you know, not a ton of talent in the room right now. And so – you know, it might be a one or two year process away, but I'm still hopeful about him. And finally, Mac Jones, like I think the thing with Mac is the 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 discussion about Mac Jones last this time last year when I was on with you guys was he's the floor guy. Everybody else has the better ceiling. With Jones, it's the best floor, perhaps, and maybe the floor and the ceiling are pretty close to each other. I think he bumped that ceiling up a little bit. I think he flashed a little bit more athleticism than I think we were expecting, a little bit more mobility than I think we were expecting, which I think is going to help him going forward. Of course, there were also nights like a three-throw game in a windy night in Buffalo where you're like, they don't trust him to play quarterback in this. Like They don't trust him. And so he's going to have to earn that trust. I think there were some throws down the stretch where you could see him starting to get a little more confidence. If he can hit the middle of the field and downfield with more velocity and consistency, that will be huge. He's told us that, look, he's, he's working. You can connect the dots, and it does seem like he's working with Tom House right now, you know, because Tom House is out there talking about some things. Some people in the Boston area have talked to Tom House and had him on shows, and he's sort of hemmed and hawed around it. 
it seems like they're trying to do some things with him from a mechanical standpoint, from a throwing motion standpoint, to add some velocities. Also, you know, strength condition. He said he's going to get off the ice cream to lose a couple of pounds. And so all of these guys, I think, are in a position to take steps forward. And so, you know, I, I just worked through them all there. But I, I'm hopeful that all six guys, all these guys that we've just talked about, are going to take strides in the next year. And I think they're all in positions to have better years than they did last year, whether it's regime changes, coaching changes, additions around them, or even in the case of Mac Jones, just not eating as much ice cream. So, Mark, I want to just probe a little bit deeper. Um, You mentioned 49ers Twitter warring about Trey Lance, Jimmy Garoppolo. I mean, I'm acutely aware as a 49ers fan myself, I've I've got the whole blanket on the bedspread and everything. But um, it's just a a simple question on Lance. Um, From what you've seen, is he ready to take over? Can, can, is he, is he going to show us, like, if you could project what you would expect to see this year, would he pass Jimmy Garoppolo if he was given, um, you know, the full season of starts? You know, I, I think so. I might not be the best person to ask because I'm somebody that two summers ago said, even before he came out, even before he was drafted, he could run the San Francisco offense right now. Like, I, I, I've been a, Huge fan of his fit in San Francisco before it was even a possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I, I firmly believe that they traded to three, hoping to get Lance because of what he could unlock in Kyle Shanahan's offense. And I talked about this when I was on last year. It's one thing when you've got that wide zone, outside zone, boot action movement off of it, and you've got Garoppolo rolling out, and you're that curl flat defender, and you're like, do I come downhill on this? No, I'm, I'm going to stay home and take away this throw. It's another thing when it's Lance. Like, like now you're really putting stress on that defender. You're really making him make a decision. And he starts coming downhill and it opens up that second level throw, that third level flow of people start to flow downhill because it's Lance instead of Garoppolo. And so I, I think with a full off season in the program, full off season of you know being able to immerse himself in the playbook, Lance, if he's the week one starter, which I still sitting here right now believe he will be, is going to really do some great things for that 49ers offense in that system. I Like I said, I, I was somebody that thought he was ready before he was even a possibility in San Francisco. And so nothing I saw last year is going to move me off that position. Yeah, I, I mean, I actually really like the play that you called out too with the boot action um, because I think uh, whether it was a dropped interception or not, I think that was one that, that Jimmy threw in uh, the playoff game when he – boot action that the yep. flat defender didn't buzz down and and then he didn't had a couldn't do it a tight window on the run and that's something yep. that we have seen from Lance. Yeah, and, um, and, and that's that's the allure of Lance is the stress he puts on defenses with his arm and with that athletic ability. And again, let's let's not forget here, you know, Paul just sort of talked about that Bills Chiefs game and how that sort of seismically shift in the NFL conversation. And it sort of shifted the Josh Allen thing in general has sort of shifted the quarterback evaluation conversation because you need that. You need that sort of ability to stress defenses with your arm and your legs and sort of get them to break down, to get them to structurally start to break down um, because of the threats that those two you know, traits posed to defenses. It's the Justin Herbert discussion as well. Like when you get those guys outside the pocket, like it starts to tear away the fabric of coverages and Lance offers that, you know, there are some guys in this class we'll talk about that 
can offer that. And, and so I think that given where the league is trending, you know, it puts guy like a guy like Lance in a position to be very successful. Yeah. And um, I mean, Paul and I talked all, all year last year about, you know, when was Trey Lance starting and I don't worry about him not passing up Jimmy Garoppolo because you know, in my mind, that was the plan all along. And it almost worked. I mean, they they went to the NFC Championship yeah. game. They, you know, I think, you know, you could criticize the organization all you want. You know, they they deserve some credit for, for getting where they went. But I think that's a, a privilege, right, that Lance is there sitting, learning, getting time to season. And, and I don't think – I don't see it as a red flag, um, not throwing a rookie straight into the fire – and I think that's something that maybe we want to circle back and touch on maybe Justin Fields, maybe Trevor Lawrence, um, but just, just how important is the organizational organization and the organizational structure and the ownership like around these rookies, the environment that they get thrown into. I want to, you said one thing about Justin Fields, you said Chicago looks like maybe a one or two year rebuild and you don't get three, four years in the NFL to prove it. Right. And if, if the entire organization is rebuilding for the first three years of your rookie contract, you know, the the NFL moves on from you. So, you know, how worried should we be about Justin Fields? Um, You know, do we think that Jacksonville has made the right moves to change the structure of their organization or, or is that, you know, Trent Baalke still there spending oodles of money on, you know, mediocre talent. So what what do you think about how an organization plays a role in the success of quarterback? Yeah. I mean, it's sort of football's version of nature versus nurture, right? Like whether you have that environment around a quarterback that's conducive to development or not is a huge part of it. It's why I always sort of caution people like, yeah, you know, I might give you my quarterback rankings, but the more important quarterback rankings are the ones that come out the Monday after the draft like the landing spot and the scheme fit, because, you know, you could take a quarterback that's immensely talented, but put him in the wrong environment and he's going to struggle. Look at Trevor Lawrence last year. I mean, I I think, you know, that's a situation where great quarterback put in a sort of dysfunctional situation. Now with respect to Jacksonville more particularly, I think the Peterson hiring is big, you know, they've obviously spent money and they've gotten some criticism for the moves that they've made. I, I, Zay Jones was a bit of a head scratcher, but I really like the Christian Kirk signing. I think they need to be a vertical-based passing game. I think that's where Lawrence is at his best. I think that's sort of what Peterson was building in Philadelphia at the end of his time with the Eagles around Carson Wentz. And I think he sort of sees the need to add vertical downfield explosive playmakers. That's Christian Kirk, who was one of the league's best receivers on throws over 20 yards downfield last year. And, yes, it comes out of the slot and he gets the benefit of a, a two-way go. But he's also, when he's played on the boundary, had the ability to beat press coverage on the outside. So I was a bit higher on the Kirk signing than most. The Zay Jones stuff and some of the other moves they made, yeah, they, they certainly threw some money around. But in what we've seen over the past, say – 48, 72 hours, maybe it doesn't look that outlandish, some of the money that they spent, number one. And also, I think, you know, we talked about that Bills game, that Bills Chiefs game being sort of an underpinning of what teams are doing. The Rams moves are also underpinnings of what teams are doing, right? There's this idea that you're going to give up future draft capital or, or you're going to go be aggressive to acquire veterans rather than unproven talent. And 
you know, you're seeing teams build around, you know, the Tyree kill trade is another example of that teams just acquiring veteran players rather than rolling the dice with rookies that you may or may not get right in terms of evaluation. And so, you know, I, I think, so the underlying question, organizational fit, scheme fit, landing spot, critical for quarterbacks. You know, I, I'm I'm a bit more worried, I guess. Not that I'm worried, So, but if you're going to ask me which one I'm worried about more, it is Fields. You know, because if Chicago is taking their time, if it's going to be a two-year process like it looks like because, you know, they're moving on from good players to trade Khalil Mack, like, you know, they've, they've got a lot that they're trying to do then, yeah, does Fields get the benefit of that patience? Now, with a new GM and a new coach, he probably does, you know, because they'll get two or three years to sort of figure it out, and and he will as well. Um, but then there is, of course, that fear that when you get a new head coach, you get a new general manager, they didn't pick the quarterback. It's not their guy. They might feel more comfortable moving on from him, like we saw with Arizona, like we saw with Cleveland. And so that's a bit more unsettling, I'd say. But – Overall, I, I still feel pretty good about this class that came out last year. Yeah, I mean, I would probably agree with you on the Fields thing. And, like, you know, I really thought they were going to go an offensive-minded guy just for Justin Fields. They chose right. to kind of pivot. And, you know, the offensive coordinator, they brought in Luke Etsy from Green Bay. You know, he's an unknown, right? He's a complete unknown. So that's another X factor, like Jacksonville trying to stabilize that surrounding thing that organization brought in Doug Peterson like we said what he's done and you know lots of teams look with a young quarterback to bring in that offensive mind that offensive play caller you know Chicago's looking to do it a little bit differently so we'll, we'll kind of see you know I, I bet next year we'll circle back and we'll we'll see if these guys have made the progress and the growth that we thought they could so let's pivot to 2022 guys because usually there's not this much uncertainty and this close to the draft. Like we're about a month away from the actual draft and you can make the case one quarterback's going in round one, two, three. I I don't see a scenario where four is happening this year. I guess if if guys really get pushed up early on, maybe then a couple more sneak in the back door, you know, and and I kind of have a feeling that like every mock draft that Drew Locke was going round one until he didn't. Yeah. And I kind of feel like that's going to happen here. And I'm not going to be stunned in the least bit if one goes in the entire round one. Because if, if teams like Carolina, Atlanta, and, and uh, Seattle choose not to go that route in the top 10, I don't think Washington's going there after what we talked about them giving up for Carson Wentz. Or if they would have liked it, why would they have made that trade? Pittsburgh is the X factor, and there's been a lot of c- – connecting dots with them and Malik Willis. So we'll see. And Trubisky was a pretty relatively, you know, modest contract. And, and then you talk about the end of round one, right? Does Detroit like somebody enough there or a team trading in for the fifth year guy? So the, the floor is yours, Mark, in terms of, I kind of want you to start and let our listeners know who's your top guy this year, because I feel like other years I could kind of just lead in and know probably where you were going, but it's a complete up for up for grabs. I think in terms of this. Yeah, I mean, and this guys is probably the year where you almost feel like you need to just tear them. Like, like Rankins aren't going to really do it justice. Like, you know, the guys you're comfortable playing early, the guys you think need a little bit more time, maybe the guys you're comfortable taking on day one. But I mean, if I'm going to take a swing, given what we've talked about, given what we talked about with that Jets Chiefs game, I mean that Bills Chiefs game, excuse me, then Malik Willis is the guy you take that swing on, like. You know, and talking to people at Indianapolis, I had a long conversation with Nate Tice 
um, who, you know, obviously does great work at the athletic, knows the position extremely well. And even though, you know, Willis isn't his top guy, like he likes Ritter the best out of this group. He said, look, if you're going to take the swing, take it on Willis. Like maybe there's a 10, 15% chance that, that he hits and gets close to his ceiling. It's worth it. You know, if you get him there, like that's, you know, we're talking about a guy with, you know, a, a sort of success band, like maybe Tyrod Taylor to Dak, you know, on the upper level. Like if you get him close to that, that's worth a first round pick. And, and so you'll take that swing, particularly when, you know, you see the things that he can do from an athletic standpoint, from an arm talent standpoint, from the ability to solve problems in a multitude of ways post snap. Now, of course, there's the, okay, well, then you also see him try to read bubble seam and throw an interception against Middle Tennessee State, and then he's running a couple weeks later, and he throws a pick against Mississippi on it. It's like, okay, well, you also need to see some stuff from a quarterback progression read concept standpoint. Like, you, you want to see that. But I think it's still, because of the arm talent, because of the athleticism, you'll take that swing on Willis. And so it – the fact that he's now in the discussion for not just QB1, but Detroit at two, which is picking up steam, um, I think tells you where the league seems to be moving at the quarterback position, at least with respect to the guy that they're willing to take that sort of swing on. So I think he ends up being the first guy off the board. You know, I, it, it's funny. Vegas has it at three and a half, I think, the over-under on quarterbacks, and that's such a perfect place to put it. Because I think you get three, four is the tricky part. Like, do you get, like you said, somebody at 32? Do you get a team at the end of the first round, like, say, Tennessee, that's like, yeah, you know, we got Ryan Tannehill, but maybe this is an opportunity to draft a guy and give him a year or two, you know, give ourselves an out from Ryan Tannehill down the road. Maybe you get a fourth guy that sneaks in there. Or maybe, like you said, Detroit at 32. If if a guy that they like falls to 32 and they're just like, look, you know, the opportunity, the value of that fifth-year option is such that we can't pass on it here. We got a pick coming up in another few selections where, if there's a position we have to address, like safety, right? Safety is a big need in Detroit. You know, if they don't go Kyle Hamilton at two, but then they get the thirty-two and there's two safeties they still like, maybe the Mission Kid Hill, maybe Brisker from Penn State. Maybe they're still on the board and they're like, we know we're going to get one of them. We're up in two picks. Maybe we'll draft a quarterback here, and so that's why we might potentially see that fourth sort of sneak in. But I think the guy you will to place the bet on is Willis. I, I think the guys that Willis is interested because he could play right away, but it's going to be a, a process. It's going to be a, a fit. There'll be some, some mistakes some bumps in the road and things like that. The two guys I think could play right away and be fairly effective are Pickett and Ritter. Um, but I don't think they have sort of the upside that Willis offers. Ritter, I think, has perhaps some nice upside to him, and Pickett moves around pretty well. But Willis is the guy I think out of this class you're gonna you'll be willing to place that bet on earlier. Yeah, I mean Willis is the guy who now I've kind of came around on that. He's the guy that I've I've kind of put at the top of my rankings now, and it's for the same reason we were talking about, right? You're either gonna shoot for the guy who could offer that upside, and if you fast forward four years from now or three years from now if there's one quarterback in this class who could be putting out on a performance like we saw from Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes I truly believe the only one that could offer that 
is Malik Willis if he hits. Now, like you said before, maybe it's 15 to 20%. Yeah. And and that might be it. Like I don't really see a very middle ground with Malik Willis, in my opinion. I either think he's going to put it together and and we're going to see those great strides, similar to how Josh Allen made those strides. And then all the things we're talking about in college that he didn't do enough of or wasn't consistent enough, he's going to learn and fix them. Or he's just going to not make it and he's going to be a guy who's not worthy of being a starting quarterback. I don't know. I don't know if there's enough of a, I don't know if there's a middle ground there. And I'm, and, I, and I think that's okay. Right. That's why he's not locked into top five. I know right. there's whispers of, but you know, obviously if we were higher percentages, this would be a no brainer, right? Everybody would be vying for him besides Jacksonville, you know, towards there at the, at the top of the draft, but his, his athletic ability, his arm talent, ability to make every throw, the, the ceiling is what you're drafting in this class because the other guys, as you talked about, like I look at a guy like Kenny Pickett and I, from what you're a little bit of what you talked about him, I see a guy who could be a functional above average starter. Yeah. Like I, I think, I think I didn't give Mac Jones enough credit last year in the pre-draft process. And I kind of feel like this year I've made sure that, I didn't downgrade Pickett as much as I did Mac Jones last year. I've learned from from where I hurt Mac Jones a little bit too much last year, thinking he was a second round pick, and I was underselling what he was good at. I didn't make that same mistake for Pickett, so I do think Pickett warrants going in round one. But I kind of feel like he's a guy who, yeah, he could be a functional above average starter somewhere between Andy Dalton, Kirk Cousins, that spectrum of play. Yeah, is is that kind of how you see him? And if you were the one making decision, is that good enough now? I know he's going to go round one, but is it good enough to just shoot for above average starter with the high level of quarterback play we're having right now in the NFL? I mean, I think that's still worthy of a first round pick because of the economics of it. Because if you can get Kenny Pickett in you know year two, year three of his rookie deal, playing at an NFL like average starter level, that can get you to a Super Bowl. I mean, because you have that cost-controlled rookie quarterback that you can then load up talent around him and make that sort of run. I mean, it's why, you know, you're seeing some teams right now saying, you know, we're going to go all in. We're going to spend some money. We're going to, you know, add talent around a player because we have this window to take advantage of. Now, then, of course, the secondary contract comes up and it's like, well, you know, is he, is Pickett going to be good enough that when he's due that second contract, he can do what Patrick Mahomes is now going to have to do and elevate everybody around him? Now, sitting right now, I can't say that with certainty. But I will say that the opportunity to have that cost-controlled rookie playing at an effective level for, you know, giving you a, a three-year window to hit, teams will draft that in the first round. And so, you know, in, in terms of where he probably comes off the board, uh, you mentioned Mac Jones, Paul. I mean, I, I think that 15 and on range of the first round is probably a sweet spot for Kenny Pickett. And, you know, I, I've, I've looked honestly, and other people have done this recently too, New Orleans at 18. Like, yeah, they just brought James Winston back. But, you know, with what they were doing with trying to, you know, trade for Deshaun Watson, it's clear that they feel like they have to figure out the long-term answer. I think picking it at 18 to New Orleans is a nice little fit because that Pete Carmichael offense, we expect it to be very much off of the Sean Payton tree where it's a lot of West Coast concepts. I think that's very good for Pickett. Uh, I know a lot of what he's done schematically is rooted in that sort of West Coast system, you know, shallow cross and things like that. 
I, I think that would be a very good offensive fit for him. And I'm not worried about hand size. That doesn't bother me, given his history and what he's done outdoors and things like that. But playing half your games indoors, maybe a team looks at that and says, hey, you know, that's not a bad opportunity too. So I think, you know, New Orleans is in an interesting spot for Pickett. But, yeah, I, I think the ability to play quarterback at a functional level as a rookie gives teams options given the economics of it, and a team will be willing to take that in the first round for sure. Just um, I think about, you know, would Cleveland draft Baker again or would the Rams draft Goff again, you know, knowing that they could make a pretty good run, but in, you know, year four, you, you know, you're, you're, you've got to kind of figure something out again. And, and fortunately I think Cleveland was smart enough to realize that you're not going to overpay Baker Mayfield. We also see just a, a, really cool market for Jimmy G right now. And and I wouldn't be surprised if with the, the talent um, around other premium positions in this, this draft class, it's really good along the trenches. Um, And, and a lot of teams I think are learning the value of building along the trenches. You know, I could see us hitting the under. Um, So there's, there's two questions. One, because I sit and, you know, sit and, talk for Matt half the time and, and Matt Corrales, his boy. Um, obviously the ankle injury injury has like really kept him quiet in this whole pre-draft process. And, and is that why we're not hearing much about it or, or what about him is, is really holding him back. And then let's assume he's, he's sort of the other name in here that goes in the first round. Is it, is there someone who's going to out, uh, knock him out and be the third quarterback is like a Desmond Ritter or who would be that fourth quarterback uh, that breaks us um, over the, the Vegas over under. Yeah. I mean, I, I think with Corral um, it, there are flashbacks to Justin Herbert's evaluation that come to mind, because if you think about Justin Herbert, his evaluation, a lot of it was this offense isn't doing him any favors. He's not asked to do a ton I don't see a lot that's going to translate to the pro game from what he's being asked to do in Oregon. And I think you see a lot of that when you watch him and study him. Like Lane Kiffin is a brilliant offensive mind and puts him in some very favorable situations, gives him some well-defined reads and throws as concepts and really does a good job at getting stuff open. You know, whether it's orbit swing smash, whether it's, you know, pop patterns and things like that, delayed pop, fake QB draw pop, like, Kiffin's a very smart offensive coordinator and play designer and play caller in addition to being a head coach. And so I think figuring out and finding stuff to his game that's going to translate is a bit tougher like it was with Herbert, but that's not to say it isn't there. You know, you can find, you know, Matt Waldman and I did a video breaking Matt Corral down and, you know, we highlighted some stuff where he's very good at moving defenders. He's very good at manipulating defenders. He's very good. You can find examples of him going one, two, three, four, five, full field progression style and his eyes and his shoulders and his hips and his feet are tied and in sync. So when he gets to that fifth read, he's ready to throw. It's not a situation where the eyes and the the, the feet are behind the eyes where, you know, now he's finally at that fifth read on the left side, but the feet are still looking to the right side and he can't make a throw as a result. And so, you know, there are also moments of him attacking the middle of the field, throwing with touch, with timing, with anticipation. And so I think it's similar to Herbert that you saw flashes from Herbert but you really had to dig to find him and you're wondering, okay, well, is this just a needle in a haystack scenario or can he really do this consistently at the next level? And so I think that's part of with Matt Corral. 
And I also think that, look, talking to people about him in Indianapolis, there's this sort of feeling that people felt and came away with when they were studying him that like third and seven and Lane's calling screens. Like he's calling draws. Like he's not asking him, he's not putting the football in his hands on third and seven. And if that's happening on Saturday nights against Alabama, what's going to happen on Sundays against the Los Angeles Rams? Like, are you going to be willing to put the football in his hands or is he going to need a little bit more time? And so, you know, I, I'm, he's my fourth guy that, you know, to sort of get to your second point, Jeff Ritter's my third. Um, I'm very fascinated by Desmond Ritter. Um, I, I think the reservations about him from a ball placement and accuracy standpoint are valid. I think to his credit, he showed improvement in that area from his junior year to his senior year. I think what's also interesting is it seemed like misses were earlier in the game as opposed to later. It seemed like he started to sort of settle in. And so you wonder if it's a energy thing, if it's a nerves thing, if it's something that he's just sort of working through at the start of games. But then you watch him against Houston in that conference championship game and they're spitting safeties and he's reading it perfectly on every snap. You know, they're going two to one. He's getting to his single matchup. They're going one to two. He'll go front side, work through concept, get to the backside dig, which is a huge part of today's game, particularly in the too high world that we're living in. And then you function, you know, factor in the athleticism that he showed first on film and then the combine with the way he ran, you know, the 40, not that a 40 yard dash is the beyond end all for quarterback evaluation, but you could see him put that athleticism to use. Scrambles on third and sevens. He had a, a scramble. I forget what team it was against, but. They went drop eight on a third and seven. He's all right, well, I'll pick it up with my legs. And that was another sort of interesting conversation, talking to Matt Corral, talking to Carson Strawn, and, you know, people were asking them, like, what what are you talking with teams about? And a lot of the teams that met with these quarterbacks are asking, how do you deal with drop eight? Because I think that's the next thing. We're in this too high world right now. After what Cincy did with their drop eight stuff to Kansas City, I think that's going to be the next wave is – Okay, teams are going to now just drop eight into coverage. How are you going to read that out? For all the jokes about, oh, no defense in the Big 12, a lot of the defensive concepts we're starting to see work their way into the NFL, three safety stuff, now drop eight. It's Big 12 stuff, you know, because they have to deal with it. They have to deal with these high-powered passing offenses. And so that's what they're doing. It's working its way into the NFL. And so the ability to pick up a first down with your legs, like Desmond Ritter did on that play, that's going to help you. And so – you know, those are the four, though. Like, you know, if you want to tell me you like Sam Howell, you want to tell me you like Carson Strong, like I get it. But from where I sit, if we see four, it's going to be some combination of those guys we've just talked about. You know, Matt Corral, Desmond Rainer, Kenny Pickett, and Malik Willis. I think those in my, those are the guys in my mind that have the best shot at going in the first round. Yeah, I mean, I think those are now kind of have – separated a little bit from the pack. I think Corral's been the guy who's been out of sight, out of mind. So if for somehow, you know, he falls further than we think and Sam Howell leapfrogs him, I wouldn't be stunned. I I, I personally have a separation between them, but I could see, you know, the NFL maybe viewing it a little bit differently. Uh, Two things I want to circle back on to you, Mark, is one, we did a, a good synopsis. You did a good synopsis with, you know, obviously we talked about Willis in, in terms of what his strengths and, you know, and concerns are. You did it with Corral very nicely. We did it with Ritter. Uh, one thing about Ritter here at Saturday, Sunday, and I'm just interested to hear your take on it is I don't know if it's the, the, when he gets run in the leg stride and the length he has, 
the the mechanics. He reminds me so much of Colin Kaepernick coming out of Nevada that I can't. I've just seen it for like two years now. I feel like Desmond Ritter has been in college forever. He's just had so many games on there's about that I feel like I've been watching him. So thoughts on if you think a Kaepernick comparison in terms of what Kaepernick was when he came out and was again going, he went right around where I think Ritter's going to end up going like that early second round, I think is the sweet spot for Ritter. Maybe he jumps in. And I do want to circle back to Pickett because we talked about the merits of whether or not he should be a first round pick, but, but I, I kind of want to, I know where, what I look at him and I see his strengths and some concerns I have about him. I'd like to just kind of circle back on him and, and maybe pick on some traits that you like most about Pickett and some things maybe have you a little concerned. Yeah. I mean, with, with Ritter, I, I certainly see the Kaepernick. I can understand that comp. I, I've kind of settled on like a Mariota comp for yep. him too. Um, you know, I think that fits. He told us at the combine that Ryan Tannehill is kind of who he models his game after. And he can almost see that as well. Um, but you know, I, I think those are all very good comps for Ritter. Um, with, with Pickett, a couple of things that I really like about him. I, I love what he does from a mental perspective. And I, I, I should say, I, I say this in all the shows I talk about him. Um, I, I know his private quarterback coach, Tony Rossiopi, well. Uh, I've been talking with Tony for years, like, you know, dating back from when I first got started. Tony was one of the first sort of reach out to me and talk ball with. And so, you know, I, I know what Kenny's been doing sort of, prep wise just to play the game and now for the draft with Tony for a while. So it doesn't surprise me that, that Kenny Pickett's good from a mental perspective. Uh, I, you can see that on film. You can see the work that he's been doing with Tony sort of paying off on the field now. And, you know, the way he reads out concept, the appropriate aggression he shows at times, like some of the throws he had against the Clemson in that Clemson game, you know, where it's like fourth down, but yeah, I've got a deep shot play. I'm going to take that shot because I know the concepts there, the coverage is right. I'm going to take it. I think that's nice to see from a quarterback. I've been talking with you guys for years about the appropriate aggression that you need to have at the quarterback position, the risks that you have to take, otherwise you're going to lose your job. And so I like to see that from him. His ability to layer throws in the middle of the field stands out to me. I think that's something he does at a fairly high level. His ability to drop throws over defenders at the second level and in front of defenders on the third level. And his willingness to attack that area of the field, which I think is big. A lot of college offenses, college quarterbacks, it's all – you know, line of scrimmage and sideline. Like, that's where they're throwing the football. But he's attacking the middle of the field a little bit more, with a little bit more consistency. And so I I do like that about him. The thing that gives me the most pause is responses to pressure when he's when it comes from somewhere he's not expecting it. You know, if he's got double mug, mugged up a gap, you know, two linebackers, and they come and he knows it, he's fine. If he sees, you know, overhand guys lurking and they come and he can see a pre-snap, he's fine. If the guy's mugged up drop and the pressure comes here and it's sort of a secondary you know, read of it, it's not where he's expecting it to come from, that's when his response to pressure is a bit shaky in my mind. Like if he, he can read it out and he knows where it's coming from and he can get ahead of it in his mind, then he's okay. But if it's sort of a secondary reaction to pressure from somewhere unexpected, that's where you see him sort of bail or you know freak out a little bit in the pocket rather than just sort of, clicking and climbing or sliding or escaping or moving in such a way where it's that subtle nuance throughout movement in the pocket that is better for quarterbacks. Instead, it's that more panicky, herky-jerky, like I'm going to run around, I'm going to pull it down, I'm going to like step up in the pocket. Wait, no, now I'm going to try to exit the back door. That's when he sort of gets into trouble. And so that's the thing that scares me, particularly in the sim pressure world we're living in where so many defenses like Miami – 
you know, they'll show seven guys up front and you don't know who's coming or going. So you won't know until you've got the ball in your hands. Like, okay, now I've got two guys off this edge and two guys through the A and B gaps on this side. I was expecting all of them to come. Now, how do you respond to it? Defenses can do such a good job now in that sim pressure environment of really confusing quarterbacks. And so that's something that concerns me with picking this transition to the NFL. When you get defensive coordinators that spend all week, you know, imagine him going up against Vance Joseph in Arizona and all the, you know, sim pressure stuff he does and all the zero, you know, three, eight coverage. I mean, personnel groupings that he uses, we've got like eight linebackers on the field. So zero, eight, three, more like it um, where you don't know who's coming and who's going like defensive coordinators are going to give him Pickett some problems until he sort of settles and gets a better feel for those moments. Yeah. I think that's the, that's the one thing that I've had circled on Pickett since I really dug in the middle of this year is the handling of the pressure. And I think you put a really nice, you know, bow and ribbon on exactly the type of pressure that he struggles with. And that's going to be interesting because that's going to be something that we know NFL teams and NFL, you know, defensive coordinators are going to know about him and he's going to have to rise up and be able to solve that problem at the NFL level. And I think that probably will make or break whether or not, He's a he's a average quarterback, a good quarterback, or below average quarterback because he has enough arm talent to make yep. every throw. He has the ability to throw a touch and anticipation. He has enough athleticism to to not just be a statue in the pocket. It's going to be can he handle that pressure that's going to be coming at him at the NFL level and not you know falter under it. And I think that's good. that's the biggest question that that he you know needs to answer. So. The other two guys who I think are probably going to go on day two, you know, you mentioned Sam Howell briefly before and Carson Strong. You know, 20 years ago, Carson Strong's probably going round one, right? The traditional oh, yeah. pocket passing quarterback. You know, you, you look at him and in his best moments, you see some glimpses of a Drew Brees or somebody like that. Uh, thoughts on those guys. Do you have a preference between those two? Because I think Howell is a guy that, you know, a year ago, he would have been on everyone's list as, oh, a year from now, he's going to be the, the first quarterback we're talking about, right? And then he lost all the skill players to the NFL, had an up and down year, uh, a lot more running for him this year. And then Strong, obviously, you know, maybe any intel you picked up at the combine, how serious is the NFL worried about his his, his injury history? Um, and just the fact that teams are kind of moving away from that traditional pocket passing quarterback. Yeah, I mean – you know, an easy comp for Carson Strong is Drew Bledsoe. And is Bledsoe getting drafted first overall in this FL? No, he's probably a fringe first-round guy because you're worried about that mobility. I mean, it, the real thing with him is going to be that knee history. And I haven't heard about combine rechecks yet. But if we get sort of, yeah, you know, Carson Strong's going through a combine recheck for that knee, then you can pretty much say, yeah, he's not going in the first round. Or maybe he's not going in the second. Maybe it's more of a late day to – situation with him you know because he has a tremendous arm and I, what i thought was interesting about Strawn was how he talked about that at the combine he said look not only did my doctors tell me to take the year off my dad told me to take a year off but i didn't want to miss my last season i didn't want to miss playing with my guys with turner with dubs like i, I wanted to play one more year of college football and so i told my doctors we got to come up with a new plan and so they came up with this sort of six month plan to sort of you know Get him on the field, let him play. You know, he had to miss some practices. He had to watch some practices from a golf cart. And he also told us that, look, the guy you saw certainly wasn't 100% because of the injury, but I also wasn't 100% mechanically. I am working with Jordan Palmer right now, but when you see 
on me when you see me on film, I couldn't drive off that leg. Like I, I couldn't drive off that right leg. I was an upper body thrower. And so I started compensating for the injury and now we're really working on my mechanics. And I thought he threw the ball really well at the combine in, in contrast, I think to what he did during senior bowl week when, you know, I wasn't down there, but saw some of the film and you know, the, the, the arm wasn't what we were expecting to see. And so, you know, with him, it's the medicals. I, I do like the arm talent. I think even with that history of the, that knee injury last year, he had moments where he moved around or at least, created space in the pocket which was nice to see but yeah then there were also moments like he had a fourth down play i forget which game it was where he's trying to scramble at the end of the game to pick up four yards and he couldn't get there i mean that that's that's a problem in today's nfl howell's howell is there's a couple of under you know interesting storylines with howell to sort of think about one is sort of the draft the life cycle of a draft quarterback because this time last year it was spencer rattler and sam howell one two like those were the guys. And then you could literally feel the earth move when they both had underwhelming debuts last year. You know, Rattler struggled early and how I think was it two or three picks he threw against Virginia tech, which were just head scratchers. And overnight, all of draft Twitter was just like, forget these guys. It was like that scene from toy story, dropping Andy into the bucket. Like we're done with them. They moved on. And I think it's unfortunate because Howell did show some nice things. His Notre Dame game, you know, for example, where even though, you know, they, they didn't win, but like he's working through reads, he's doing the things that you need to see from a quarterback. He's, you know, ruling stuff in and out pre-snap and post-snap. He's keeping his feet and his eyes and his mind tied to concepts as he works through progressions. Paul, you mentioned his ability as a runner. He was their second leader rusher this year. That was a, a part of his game that you didn't really see until this year. And it, exploded in a huge way but because of that start people had already moved on people had already moved on to kenny pickett people were already talking about malik willis and so the sort of community just moved away from him and there's also the unfortunate fact for him that an easy comp is baker mayfield and it's like well look around you is is baker mayfield going in the first round right now probably not at least not first overall and now you've got a guy that's like baker 2.0 what are you going to really do with that and so you know how is sort of stuck in this world where it's like everybody moved on and now he's seeing guys rise up boards while he's sort of really coming under the radar a bit and so he's probably somebody that's going to end up sliding into day two as a result but that might be the best thing for him because won't have those expectations and he'll you know step into a situation where maybe he goes to a team like say you know let's say pittsburgh doesn't go quarterback at 20 they just they try to get up from Malik Willis. They can't. And they're like, look, we're not going to spend 20 on a quarterback at this point. You know, we're going to roll with Trubisky and Rudolph and Dwayne Haskins and see where we go. But then Stan, Sam Howell is staring them in the face at 52. Then it's like, all right, they can take their time with them and it might be a good landing spot for him. And so I think Howell is somebody that's going to go on day two, but it might end up being pretty good for him in the end. I know we're uh, running close up on time, but I had, I had, sort of one question and then I want to open the floor for anything else you want to touch on. Um, you, you talked about one of your, uh, a potential really nice landing spot for Pickett is, is New Orleans at, at 18. And, and I think New Orleans is one of those landing spots that I think would be a phenomenal spot organizationally Pittsburgh, another one. Do you have any favorite pair? Like you, you mentioned Lance to San Francisco. Do you have any favorite pairings for this quarterback class? And then, 
And then just from there, just take it on. Is there, do you want to circle back on anything? Do you want, is there any day three guys that you're just a fan favorite of that you think could have a good chance to carve out an NFL career? Yeah. I mean, there are a couple of, of fits that I kind of really like, and we could start with one of the guys we were just talking about um, Carson Strong. I have guys for a long time now been trying to pair Bruce Arians with a quarterback. I mean, I, I've gone down this road countless times and I, I, I firmly believe that if Carson Strong is staring Tampa Bay in the face at 60 or 91, even, you know, obviously they brought Brady back, but like it might just be a one year. You just, as Parcells once famously said, look, if a guy's got one foot out the door, like he's gone, like as much as I'm a believer in Tom Brady and think he's a maniacal lunatic when it comes to putting himself in a position to be successful, you come, you retire for 40 days and come back. Like, is your heart truly in it? I still think it is, but Tampa Bay might want to hedge, you know, I don't know if they're sold on, you know, the guys behind him. I don't know if they're sold on Kyle Trask. And so Carson Strong, I think would be an ideal Bruce Arians quarterback, like an ideal Bruce Arians quarterback. So I, I like that fit. You know, you mentioned New Orleans and Pittsburgh. I, I do sort of like that. Carolina is another sneaky fit uh, for, for Kenny Pickett. I think that's what a West coast offense would think would be a good fit for him. You know, McAdoo, obviously his roots in that West coast system. I think that would be a good parent. You know, coming up with a fit for Malik Willis is interesting. Washington is a sneaky good one, but they're certainly not drafting a quarterback at 11 after trading for Carson Wentz. Like, Carson Wentz is like, you know, we saw what it did with the Foles. When Foles won a Super Bowl, we saw what drafting Jalen Hurts did to Carson Wentz. I don't think they do that. But I think Washington schematically would be a fit. You know, maybe – Atlanta, but the better fit, I think, for Atlanta is Ritter. I think Ritter would be perfect in Arthur Smith's offense. He even mentioned, like, look, I model my game after Ryan Tannehill. I think that would be almost an ideal pairing. Um, Willis, I think, you know, if he there's a reason why Mike Tomlin seems excited about him. And I think Pittsburgh would be a nice fit for him. You know, a lot of the stuff we saw, whether it was a reflection of where Roethlisberger was at the end, but it was so much ISO vertical routes, like, you know, let him throw one-on-ones to the boundary. I think that's something Willis can do day one, and you start to fill in the other stuff around him. So I think, you know, Pittsburgh might be a good landing spot for Willis. Initially, three weeks ago, it was like Denver. Like, get Willis to Denver and let him, you know, play with those guys. It would be great. But obviously they went the Russell Wilson route. As far as day three, guys, um, it's not like a couple of years ago where I came on and said, look, Kyler Murray's nice, Dwayne Haskins, Daniel Jones, sure. But let me let me talk to you about this kid from, from Boise State, Brett Rippin, right? Let, let me talk to you about Brett Rippin, who was my QB4 that year. I'm not quite as high on this guy as I was Rippin, but I'm getting there. And that's Skylar Thompson from Kansas State, who is starting to get some buzz and talking to people. I, I've talked now. I, Matt Waldman and I did a show about him. Matt loves him. I don't know when Matt's going to end up on him when his RSP comes out, but something tells me it's going to be pretty high. I, I've talked to two other people that are in the scouting game, not in the NFL, but for other teams or leagues, college. They're not in the NFL world, but they like to do quarterback evaluation. And I've heard from both of them that he's their QB1. Like There are people that look at Skylar Thompson and say, it's not enough of a body of work to say definitively, yeah, he's the guy, but the, the tools are there. Um, 
I still think he's somebody that's going to come off the board in day three. Talking to people that were at the Shrine Bowl, his practices were not great, you know. But then you see a throw like he made against LSU in that bowl game. I know LSU had the three of us as their started corners in that game. But he dropped in an over route on post over in the midst of three defenders on the sideline. Well, I didn't drop the pen. I threw it over my shoulder because I couldn't believe it. I mean, he had some some plays on film that were just like, man, this kid's legit. Now, you know, there are also some inconsistencies. There are some mechanical issues at times. There are some missed throws. But I think, look, if we're talking day three flyers, that's the one I that's the one I'd take. And uh, New Orleans, for example, say they don't draft a quarterback at eighteen, but they're sitting there at ninety eight with that third round comp or one one with another third round comp or even at one twenty, and they're like, look. We can take a roll of the dice now. I think that'd be a nice little landing spot for him. So as far as day three guys, Skylar Thompson is the one that I, I keep coming back to. There are other guys that are intriguing, like Bailey Zappi, obviously put up huge numbers. Caleb Ellaby, I think, is a fantastic quarterback. I would have loved to have seen him go back for one more year, but I think he probably looked around and was like, look, if I can't throw a sky more on third and seven, I'm yeah, I'm going to move on. And plus, he's probably looking around like, look, look at this class. I could probably be a – quarterback two in this group so that's probably why he decided to come out um and there are some other guys sort of later like jack Cohn, the wisconsin notre dame kid does some nice things did a lot from the mental perspective from setting protections and calling stuff the line of scrimmage which you talked about at the combine which i thought was impressive but yeah for me it, it's skylar thompson's that day three guy this year yeah i mean really good stuff there thompson is a guy who definitely i think the buzz like you talked about is building as a guy who I'd be surprised if him or Cone aren't the, the QB7, QB8 at this point. I think those are the guys that I would say definitively are the eight quarterbacks that are going to get drafted, and then we'll and, see and if anybody what's else. what's interesting, Paul, is I don't feel like the Thompson buzz is like the Nate Peters, Peterman buzz or the Davis Wood buzz where it's like, look, we're bored. We're tired of talking about these guys. Let's just throw a new name in the mix. And <laughs> Gil Brandt is like, yeah, Nate Peterman's going to sneak into the first round. Everybody like freaks out and starts redoing mock drafts. And suddenly you've got Nate Peterman coming off the board at 20 overall. And we're like, what are we doing with our lives? <laughs> I think there's something to it. I think there's like reasoned buzz about it, which is, yeah, he's not going in the first round. He's probably not going on day two. But in this class, if you're going to take a flyer on day three, the tools are there. So he's worth that sort of late round day three pick where it's like, if he's in the right opportunity and he gets a chance to show what he can do, you might really turn that lottery pick into something special. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to kind of see. I, you know, As you know, obviously, someone who follows the Giants closely, I don't think they're in the market early this year. I think they're going to give Jones one more year with Dable and, and the new you know, the new organization, you know, GM, that. But I wouldn't be stunned if they take a flyer on somebody on day three just to yeah. add somebody else to the mix, you know, and if they see something in practices and stuff like that. Like, you know, because we, 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 we look ahead to next year. It's like, okay, a lot of teams are going to need quarterbacks. Not everyone's going to get C.J. Stroud and Bryce Young. And yeah. who knows? Those are the guys we're talking about right now. Like last year we were talking, like you said, Matter, Spencer Rattler and Howell. Howell. Yeah. So, so we'll see where we are a year from now. Mark, an absolute pleasure. One of my favorite podcasts I look forward to every year, talking quarterbacks with you. I'm sure most of our audience follows you, but please uh, let them know what your Twitter handle is. If there's anything you want to promote that you're working on currently right now, I know, I know you kind of dabble in lots of different places. If there's anything you want to kind of promote in, in terms of uh, checking out your work, please let us know. Yeah, guys, well, 
always a blast coming on. Like, like from my point of view, one of my favorite shows every year. Uh, I love coming on, diving into these quarterbacks with you guys. Uh, like you said, at Mark Schofield on Twitter. Um, USA Today's Touchdown Wire, Doug Ferrar and I are going to start doing our top 11 at each position for the draft. I'm doing quarterbacks, tight ends, receivers, interior defensive linemen, linebackers, and corners. Um, Doug's getting the rest. Um, I am a firm member of Team Sauce. Um, Sauce Garner is CB1. Um, that, I'm sticking to that. Uh, I'm a huge fan of his game. I would draft him in the top five and not worry a second about it. And so that's my Sauce Gardner take. Um, really excited about these linebackers, too. I just actually did a piece on uh, Lloyd and Dean, how they impact the passing game in different ways. It's interesting. Dean's more like a linebacker corner, and Lloyd's like a linebacker edge. So they like play two different levels, but they do at such a high level. And so I, those are guys I'd, I'd draft in the first round. I know off-ball linebackers are sort of devalued in today's game, but I love those two guys. And so, yeah, we'll be rolling out the top 11 in positions. And like I said, those are the ones that I'm covering. But at Mark Schofield on Twitter is the easiest way to catch up with it all. And guys, as always, thanks so much for having me on, man. Always a blast. Absolutely, guys. Make sure you're following Mark. Make sure you're checking out all his great work uh, over at USA Today. Excellent stuff, as always. So, on behalf of Mark, on behalf of Jeff, on behalf of our sound tech engineer, David Nakano, and myself, thank you for joining us, and we look forward next time taking you from Saturday to Sunday.